Good morning, everyone. What a delight to see you. I just gotta scan the room. I see familiar faces, faces that are becoming slowly more familiar. Can we, I just wanna have one of these moments to say like, you know, um, I think I've met you once before, uh, but remind me of your name again. Just permission to do that, okay? Just wanna give us permission and uh, do that, because I sure need it. And um, not remembering if I've met somebody, we've had years of half faces and all these things going on, so it's just it's crazy. Uh, my name is Nelson, I'm one of the pastors here. It is lovely to be with you all. And uh, I've been away for a couple of Sundays in a row. First, well, all of us were away. We had the rained out picnic on Canada Day weekend. And last week I was home with my daughter who was unwell. So it, it's good to be back and kind of nice to be back in the, in the preaching space here. It's been several weeks since my last sermon and grateful to our other preaching team members and guests who have been offering their reflections over the past month or so, Audrey Gertson, uh, Lawrence Chung and Jobin David from Jacob's Well. Shouts to all of you. Gratitude to all of you. Um, well, we're in the season of summer, of course, and that's sure been a gift, hasn't it? Um, I love seeing pictures of y'all outside with friends and family and just kind of enjoying each other, enjoying creation. Um, but in terms of the church year, seasonally, we remain in the long liturgical season known as ordinary time. So we have come through the top half there, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, and Easter, and through Pentecost, and now we're well into ordinary time. So churches that follow the liturgical calendar all the time, as we are this year, spend over half the year simply learning, and I think relearning, the art of living a Christ-centered life. And in that sense, as Sister Joan Chittister reminds us, there is nothing ordinary, if by ordinary we mean inferior or less important, about this season at all. Instead, she writes, this is the extraordinary time of coming to see the world through the eyes of Jesus. It is the time of catechesis in the faith, of immersion in the scriptures. It is the time when the implications of Easter and Christmas become most clear to us all. It is the time between times, yes, but it is much more than that. Like an echo off a mountain that ripples and repeats itself down the valleys of life, the Sundays of ordinary time stand as stark and repeating reminders of the center of the faith. Ordinary time is a time for making the faith the force of daily life. This is the time that makes dailiness, stability, fidelity and constancy, the marks of what it takes for Christians to be Christian the rest of the year. I love that image of the stories and the scriptures that we engage during these weeks as an echo reverberating down a mountainside into the rivers and forests and trails and thickets of our daily experience. I'm hoping that's happening at least to some extent for you as we have journeyed through ordinary time thus far. So recently, uh, our preachers have been sticking with the gospel texts. As we know, the lectionary offers up four texts for each particular Sunday, and it's kind of preacher's choice if you're preaching by lectionary. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the same thing, stick with, with the gospel. And we're gonna look at a little episode at the end of Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. It's short, um, but kind of famous. You've heard it once already. And... Um, I, when I saw this text was coming, I got excited, mainly because I've never preached this before, 
And I kind of like this story. It's been read once already, but let's hear it again. Luke 10, 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So let me qualify what I said before about being excited. At first I got excited, then I got into the text a bit more. I was like, whoo boy, this is just a little fraught, shall we say. Almost feels like a setup. So many folks throughout history have read it as an intentional throwdown between the contemplative and the active life. Or if you identify with Martha, even the slightest bit between the contemplative life and the responsible one. And who's felt this fraughtness most keenly? Women, absolutely the women, with good reason. It's women who often, whether by necessity or patriarchy, played the role of Martha. All that making sure. The kids didn't skip school. Supper was on the table, bills were paid, the house was clean, the whole enterprise ran as smoothly as possible. Martha, the one who always made sure. Now given all this, because for so much of history, the primary, if not exclusive domain of women was presumed to be domestic, we ought to understand if women, when they hear this story, feel like Jesus is disparaging these roles, especially when it also seems like Jesus is praising Mary who doesn't seem concerned about hospitality at all. Indeed, Jesus says, it's right here, she's chosen what is better. When you read a text that seems to portray and to portray so clearly Jesus favoring one thing, favoring one sibling, not to mention personality type, over another, the normal and appropriate response is to cringe and cringe hard. I was excited, and then I got cringy real fast. Do we really want this little gem echoing down the valleys of our existence? <laughs> Womanist theologian Dr. Will Gaffney had some words to say about how many folks tend to read this story. She wrote this, interpretations of the Martha, or Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary story, often focus on a, a woman's place. What past for liberating readings in some contexts is saying that a woman's place is not just in the kitchen, but also at the feet of Jesus. Missing from the less than revolutionary readings is the question of why it is imagined that women have a place when men don't. Facts. <laughs> Gets even better. She says next, the whole world and even the whole cosmos, according to the men who kept women from originally going into space, is their place. Preach, Dr. Gaffney. How are we meant 
to read and understand this text. What's the good news? Who is it good news for? I was excited, I got cringy, but then I got hopeful. It's been quite the roller coaster. <laughs> hopeful because as it happens, there are ways to read this text that are much more nuanced and balanced, loving and liberating, less binary, equity and justice based, in other words, truly Jesus-centered. My hope is that by the time we're done this morning, we will come away with a fresher, lighter, wider, more inclusive perspective of the good news of this text, and perhaps even a deeper sense of what Jesus is truly inviting us into here and now. Are you with me? Women are like, we'll see. Okay, let's walk through together. 38, 39 once more. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now one thing to remember before we go any further is that Luke has more content about women than any of the other gospels. It's important to say their names and to recall their stories. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, the prophetess Anna, who appeared alongside Simeon in the birth narratives. There's the woman who washed Jesus' feet as an introduction to a story Jesus told. Women were listed as being with the disciples. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, says Luke, whose names aren't recorded. Women are healed, like Jairus' daughter, the woman who had been bleeding and a woman who was crippled. The widow with her small offering is a story in the narrative arc of Jesus' teaching in the temple. Mary and Martha, of course, appear in the story we're looking at today. And in chapter 24, a grand climax of the Gospels, it's the women who discover the tomb and become the first witnesses to the resurrection. It's important to say their names, to tell their stories, as Luke does. But, as Judy Fentress Williams notes, by no means should we equate the presence of women in Luke with a presumed equality. Yeah? Women are included, they're highlighted, but that doesn't mean they were on the same level. They're often also cast in roles of subservience, and some scholars wonder if their presence may even reflect an attempt to legitimate male dominance in the Christianity of the author's time. This is critical contextual information to bear in mind. So again, the text opens with these words. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Martha opened her home to him. So Jesus is traveling through the towns and villages of Palestine, likely in the region of Judea near Jerusalem. Because a couple chapters prior, we read about Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. We're, we're moving towards the end here. So he's with his disciples. They're on the road, most likely with the group known as the 12, who were all men. So when Martha opened her home to him, she also opened it to them. Then... Martha's little sister Mary enters the scene, and where is she? What's she up to? Luke says she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. In other words, she was with the men. This is first century Jewish culture, remember. Women definitely had a place 
in that world. And whatever else it was, it was decidedly not sitting down at a rabbi's feet. Kenneth Bailey, Middle Eastern scholar, in his illuminating and helpful book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, put it this way, to sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that one was a disciple of a rabbi. Mary thus became a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. The feet of Jesus, as far as those at the center of things were concerned, were no place for a woman, yet there Mary sat and listened together with the men. And Jesus didn't send her away. Not only that, he applauded her for it. We'll say more about that shortly, but for now, listen to another scholar who summarized the scene this way. A woman sits and learns at Jesus' feet, possibly in the process transgressing cultural expectations, and Jesus approves, implying that all dimensions of sharing in his ministry are open to women and men alike. Now, before we consider verse 40, which starts with the words, but Martha, cue the suspense. It's the inciting incident that every good story needs. Let's just pause before we get there and appreciate something about both these women. Even before the drama, verse 40, we see devotion. We see devotion. It's embodied in Martha, in her invitation to Jesus and the disciples to enter her home to rest their feet, to eat her food. This is devotion as hospitality. And it's embodied in Mary, in her desire to listen and learn, to sit at the feet of her rabbi. This is devotion as receptivity. Both these postures are welcomed and approved of tacitly at this point by Jesus. Both women were devoted to him. Both women are named and highlighted by Luke. I love the way artists often help us look beyond binary categories to see and name complexity, to appreciate, to nuance, and it can be tremendously helpful to see stories in a visual way. There's this painting by Fra Angelico, a fresco from around 1450 entitled Agony in the Garden. And as far as I've been able to tell in my research, it still hangs in a museum in Florence, Italy. Anyone been to Florence, Italy and seen this particular painting? Do you remember it? Who knows, there's a lot of paintings in Florence. Yeah, it's true. Um, uh, so have a look at it here on the screen. The painting highlights the devotion of both Martha and Mary by introducing another comparative angle. It does this with a split scene image showing two separate gospel narratives that don't, on the surface anyway, have any direct connection with each other. So on the left, we see Jesus praying in the garden in the upper left corner, and the male disciples are nodding off. From left to right, James, John, and Peter. Angelico helpfully painted the names of each in their halos so we know who's who. It's right there, you look at the detail. On the right, in the house, we have Mary and Martha, fully awake and at work. Take a closer look at them in this detail. Mary's dressed in a gray blue, reading a book, likely meant to be a Bible. Some imagine her engaged in a contemplative Lectio Divina, while Martha, in red on the far right, is praying, a symbol of the active life. It's fascinating. Is Angelico making the point that the women were vigilant and alert 
while the men sleep. Hmm. One commentator notes, nothing in their behavior nor in the overall composition signals dispute about which is the better part. Their status is complementary. Unless Martha's glance towards Mary suggests, I love this, that our words to God should be informed by God's word to us. Through their prayer and study, they were ahead of the men slow of heart in the garden. In this, they are perhaps an anticipation of the women, including that other Mary, Mary Magdalene, who believe the evidence of the resurrection before the male disciples have woken to its implications. Whatever else is being said through this piece, what's clear is that contemplation and action are not being pitted against each other. Both count as devotion to Christ. So preceding the drama, verse 40, is devotion in various forms. We keep moving. Okay, verse 40, one more time. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. What's important to note here, first off, is that Martha's impulse to immediately get something going in the kitchen is completely understandable and even expected. Especially in that context, she was simply being faithful to the tradition of hospitality that was centuries old. At least as far back as the book of Genesis. Remember the story when Father Abraham welcomed three emissaries from God into his tent? The difference is that just as Abraham turned to Sarah to help out, Martha expected Mary to do the same. Martha's expectations did not include Mary plopping down on the rug and leaving everything to her. And yet that's exactly what her sister did. So here's one way to look at the scene. Over in the kitchen, you've got Martha flipping through recipes, boiling water, chopping vegetables, setting the table. Meanwhile, back in the living room, Mary is settled down at the feet of their friend and guests hanging on every word. Who could blame Martha for banging the pots a little more loudly than she needed to, or setting the plates down on the table with some force to just make her point? But I wonder, is that all that's happening for her? Is this truly about Martha needing help in the kitchen? Or is there something else going on? Something beneath the surface, even of the words Luke has recorded for us. Let's keep looking. We're told she's distracted by all the preparations. That's how the NIV has it. Other translations say, distracted by much serving. Now, as we know, to be distracted, you need to be distracted from something by something. The sense that the gospel writer seems to want to convey is that Martha in this moment is distracted from the teaching of Jesus by her preparations. Seems clear, right? So she asks Jesus to send Mary into the kitchen to give her a hand. But what if Martha's frustration isn't about needing someone to peel the potatoes? What if her being upset has more to do with the fact that her little sister is seated with the men and has in fact become an apprentice 
of their rabbi guest. In the Middle Eastern context, this is much more naturally understood to be the case. Given what we know about the customs and expectations in that setting, it isn't hard to imagine what's going through poor Martha's mind. This is an absolute disgrace. What will happen to us now that my sister has joined this band of men? What will the neighbors say? What will the family think? Who's gonna wanna marry her after this? This is too much. So imagine with me that this is the real issue for Martha. Not that Mary isn't helping her. Not that Martha sees sitting with Jesus in itself as less important than prepping a meal. Now against that backdrop, let's listen to Jesus' words in 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Again, Kenneth Bailey helps us notice that what Jesus is responding to here are not Martha's words in particular, but their deeper meaning. Bailey suggests, in context, Jesus' answer is essentially saying this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I understand the entire list. I just love that sentence right there as well. Imagine Jesus saying to Martha, I, I know, I know. One thing is needed. What is missing is not one more plate of food, but rather for you to understand that I am providing the meal and your sister has already chosen the good portion. I will not allow you to take it from her. A good student is more important to me than a good meal. This reading is given weight when we consider that Jesus seems to be using culinary imagery in his response where the NIV has Mary has chosen what is better, more literal translations such as the ESV say Mary has chosen the good portion. And portion, of course, can mean portion of food at a meal. We try to say this another way. The way I'm coming to understand the text is that Jesus isn't going after Martha the active or Martha the conscientious host. He's not confronting Martha, the doer of good deeds, as though there was anything inherently misguided about these impulses. As Luke's gospel and the scriptures as a whole reveal, these are authentic practices of devotion, which Jesus sees and welcomes. Jesus is going after Martha, the distracted, Martha, the worried, Martha, the anxious. Martha, the overly concerned about reputation and outcomes. And in the process, Jesus is defending Mary's right to become a disciple, to continue her learning, to keep going in her theological studies. Jesus is using this story to declare, not just to Martha, but to every other male disciple seated on the rug with Mary, that the traditional cultural separation between women and men no longer applies. He's saying that whole thing is done. Mary has taken the risk of discipleship and devotion, and Jesus says it will not be taken away from her.
That last part, not a paraphrase. It's in there. Let's be very clear. The better thing in context isn't contemplation over action. The point of the story is that the contemplative and the active inwardness and outwardness belong together. They augment each other. They're like the bass and treble clef in the symphony of a Jesus-centered life. One without the other would be like an orchestra with only flutes and piccolos with no trombones and timpanis, or a choir of tenors and basses with no altos or sopranos. And I'm saying this as someone, and this is no surprise to anyone who knows me well, who is very drawn to a contemplative way of being in the world. I'm one who feels increasingly that a big part of my particular calling is to curate spaces for contemplative practice and to invite and to help others along that path. As a community of faith, I think it's safe to say that we are desiring to learn from Jesus, from other mentors and teachers, what it means to hold these postures faithfully together. Now, one place I've explored this tension is in my own writing. I just wrote a book, you guys. So shameless self-promotion, but not only that, it connects, okay? It connects to the sermon. I'm doing this because it, it speaks to this creative tension that I and I believe we are seeking to live into and because it highlights one of our best teachers in doing so. Father Richard Rohr named his organization the Center for Contemplation and Action out of a firm belief that these two ways of being must be linked together and that instruction in the contemplative way ought to take priority. In what I think is one of his best books, Everything Belongs, if you haven't read it yet, you should immediately get a hold of a copy and read it. Next, I mean, after you finish mine. He writes, this may seem odd coming from a center that works to improve people's lives and is committed to social change, but I'm convinced that I must primarily teach contemplation. I've seen far too many activists who are not the answer. Their head answer is largely correct, but the energy, the style, and the soul are not. So if they bring about the so-called revolution they are working for, I don't want to be part of it, especially if they're in charge. They might have the answer, but they themselves are not the answer. In fact, they're often part of the problem. Rohr goes on to say that this form of noisy, reactive activism is why so many revolutions ultimately never achieve their end goal. They self-destruct from within. Instead, he suggests, we ought to follow the example of Jesus and other great spiritual teachers into a steady, ongoing change of our inner posture. Instead of floating down the current of an ego-driven culture, Rohr encourages the contemplative pathway, which will inevitably bring us face to face with our go-to patterns of control, addiction, tension, anger, and fear. When Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness, Rohr writes, the first things that show up are wild beasts. Contemplation is not, first of all, consoling. It's only real. I can sure attest to that. It has not always been easy, but the more I dig deeper into the soil of my made in the image of God's self, paying attention, listening, and learning, the more I am rejuvenated by love. I'm sustained and nourished by the practices of silence and attentiveness to my inner landscape which is where we all first and foremost encounter the divine.
So may we not forget that the gospel story we've been looking at is a particular occasion where a particular corrective is gently offered to a single individual as part of a response to a particular action taken by another individual. I do believe there are some prescriptive invitations that apply to a good many, if not all of us, emerging from this text. But maybe we should also ask questions that are specific to our context as part of our response. So let's imagine we're a room full of Marthas, distracted, worried, anxious, concerned about many things. We could compare notes, right? What is the corrective we need right now in our context at this time from Jesus? What is the good part? What's the better portion for artisan right now? If you've been around our community for a while, you likely know that our neighborhood groups try to follow certain rhythms in their shared life. Withward, upward, outward, and inward. I won't define them all now, but I wanted to mention that our neighborhood group had a rich conversation this past fall about the outward direction. And one of the outcomes of that, of that night was this question. What if the most faithfully present outward action we can take right now is to listen? Is to listen. What if embodying the gospel most faithfully in Vancouver, in this moment, in the downtown east side, or whichever neighborhoods we live, work, play, and rest in, means active listening, paying attention, learning the history of colonialism, asking where the roots of white supremacy and exceptionalism go deepest, and seeking to dismantle and decolonize and disempower those habits and patterns within ourselves. I love what author Carlos Rodriguez shared the other day. Maybe some of you saw it. Take a look. It's good to ask, why does God allow so much injustice in the world? Even more transformative to ask, why do I? Why do I? Do you see how we need both contemplation and action? to ask and answer the more transformative question which arises from looking outward and seeing and grieving and lamenting injustice, we need to go inward. The question arises from outward, but it drives us inward to ask ourselves here in our heart spaces, in the silence, how we might be complicit and causal in what we see out there. So one question we wanna be asking as a church is what does contemplative justice look like? It's a big question. It's one to keep holding and wrestling with and wondering about. For now, for today, as we begin to approach the communion table, let's consider our response by taking a cue from Carlos Rodriguez. Let's move inward. So still imagining ourselves as Martha, what are the things that distract you and I from sitting with Jesus? from listening to his words, his teaching, from learning and trusting and letting his influence, his life, his manner with people impact us and change us. Jesus points out that Martha is upset and worried. What, what makes us upset and worried? Do these things distract us from the better thing as they did for Martha? 
a few years ago, Tom Friedman wrote a column in the op-ed page of the New York Times called The Taxi Driver, not to be confused by the film Taxi Driver, which is about different things. He told of being driven by cab by, uh, from Charles de Gaulle Airport to Paris. If you've been there, you know Charles de Gaulle is a little outside of Paris, so during the one-hour trip, he and the driver had done six things. He enumerated them. The driver had driven the cab, talked on a cell phone, watched a video, which was a little nerve-wracking, said the author. Whereas he, Tom, had been writing, working on a column on his laptop, and listening to music played on his iPod. This is a few years back. There was only one thing we never did, he wrote. Talk to each other. Friedman went on to quote Linda Stone, a technologist who had written that the disease of the internet age is continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. Maybe this isn't only something brought on by the internet. Maybe it's always been with us and the causes of our inattention have just been altered. They morph and change. I think this gospel story is an open, ongoing invitation from Jesus to give him some continuous full attention, just like we do our closest friends. So we continue to ask ourselves gently, compassionately, what's getting in the way? Some people say I have too many tabs open on my web browser. I don't know, I don't see it. Has the obsessive drive to always be multitasking ever been the root or cause of your unwillingness or inability to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. So here's my personal confession. I need Jesus. I need Jesus on the regular to come after me in my continual partial attention. I need Jesus to come at me. Don't at me, bro. Do at me, bro. I need Jesus to come at Nelson the distracted, Nelson the worried, Nelson the anxious, Nelson the overly concerned about reputation and outcomes. If you want to join in my confession, fill your name in, the first blank. Also, what other second blanks might we add? Anyone wanna call one out? Risk the vulnerability of using your own name? Pause for a minute. Trusting, overachiever, people pleaser. Yeah, me too. Anyone else? The terrified. The apathetic. Here's some good news Jesus cares more about our devotion than we ever could. Not only that, Jesus is more devoted to you and me than we could ever be to him. 
getting ourselves free. I put it in air quotes, because I don't know if that's a final thing ever, but getting ourselves more free from distraction, anxiety, being terrified, fear, overachieving, getting ourselves more free from these things in faith and spiritual practice and life is not all up to us. It's not. We were made for community and we have been given the spirit. So how might the spirit of Jesus want to visit you today? How might Jesus, to put it another way, want to meet you in your distraction, in your anxiety, in your worry, in your fill in the blank? Put it one more way. How is spirit expressing its desire to free up your attention to divine love itself, to yourself, to others, to creation? Let's have a brief moment of stillness to just sit with these invitations to notice what stirs in you as you consider them, to consider your response. And then in a moment, we'll come to the table together. Let's be still.